Well, it's great to be here this morning. Through the summer period, we've been talking about um, stories, our stories, and sharing our stories, and stories particularly that lead us to God. So this is something of my story this morning, not only my story. Um, there are one or two other people that I'll be, or one person in particular that I'll be talking about in my story, who was a great inspiration to me. Um, but above all, I think what's important for you to understand is, is that this is a story about God. It's God's story in my life. Um, and I just want to say, I didn't bring it, I had a tissue down there. I have a weepy eye. Um, I'm not crying, okay? <laughs> Actually, I have to, have to admit that I'm one of the most emotional people that I know. <laughs> and there are certain stories that set me off. So there we go. Anyway, so my text this morning is Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. I want to share something with you to start of my heritage, my whakapapa. I hope you can read that okay. So this is my biological whakapapa and my spiritual whakapapa. It's the line through which I have come that has made me who I am today. My three times great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather, was James Rolston, and he was in Ireland. And he had a little farm in Ireland and lived there. And he was a member, or at least what we know, he was, yeah, he was, he was registered with the Church of Ireland, Church of Ireland being a Protestant uh, church in Ireland. Um, how much he attended church or not, we have no idea. My great-great-grandfather was also named James, and he was also a member of the Church of Ireland. And these two, these two men were, and their families were right in the middle of what was known as the Ulster or the Irish Troubles um, way back, um, that still continue to some degree today, where Protestants and Catholics came together and fought each other. Um, lots, of, uh, lots of stuff happening there. They lived right in that area. And this church, the particular church that they were members of um, uh, in Drum Cree, was the centre, if you like, of where the, the troubles were. So they weren't in a very happy situation there. My great-grandfather was Richard Rolston. And... Uh, he came from Ireland to New Zealand and settled here. And he made a profession of faith. He was in the Church of, of Ireland as well, and in New Zealand made a profession of faith and um, became a member of the Open Brethren Assemblies in, um, in the area where he was living down near Levin, Ohau. Um, the Open Brethren being the heritage that we as MCC share here. This is how we started 
from the open brethren and um, evolving, if you like, into who we are today. Um, my grandfather was Robert Ralston, and uh, he was also a member of the Open Brethren. Both my great-grandfather and my grandfather were active members in the church, uh, in the assemblies, and uh, they were both um, preachers of the Word of God. My father, Ken Ralston, uh, born here in New Zealand, what I know of him is that he passed when I was uh, 21, and he was just 48, 49 years of age. What I know of him is that he made a profession of faith in his teenage years uh, and uh, also preached to some degree. But in the time that I knew him as my dad, uh, I never knew him to practice his faith. So something happened in, that, in, in his life to discourage him or to um, bring about this situation where he no longer practiced his faith with us. Not openly, at least. Um, that was my father, Ken. And then there's me, Ron Ralston. And um, born in New Zealand, I made a profession of faith as well, and I'll come to that in a little while as part of my story. Became part of the Open Brethren Assemblies down in um, just north of Wellington on the Kapiti Coast at Otaki, and, uh, and now a member of MCC, Massey Community Church. So this is my history, both in the um, human terms and in spiritual terms. And this is really important. It's really important because I am who I am today because of these people and because of this history. And this history is not only a happy history. There are lots of things that have gone on within this history uh, that have not been happy. That I'm not going to be talking about this morning, but just to let you know that, like all of us, we all have stories in our lives that are not okay, that we wish had never happened, perhaps. Um, and that have, however, those, those histories have made us who we are today, and I am who I am today because of these people and because of this spiritual uh, reality in, in my line. <clears throat> Not yet. My ancestors came from Ireland, as I've said. Um, my great-grandfather entered in his diary, I, Richard Ralston, took God as my guide November the 28th, 1892. And I guess in a more um, significant way, I would trace the start of my heritage back to that point. However, even before that, people were members of a church and therefore God was speaking into their lives and so not to be discounted. The same year that he um, made a profession of faith, they joined the Open Brethren Assembly that met in a neighbour's neighbor's home. My grandfather Robert followed his father's footsteps, became a leader and teacher in the assemblies as well. Um, and I've talked about my father who made a profession of faith, but in the time that I knew him, um, he, I never knew him to practice his faith. My mum was the person who kept faith alive in our family. Um, we lived a half hour journey from the, the nearest brethren, open brethren church, 
uh, by train. And every Sunday, she, my mum would gather my brother and myself, and we would jump on the train and uh, toddle off up to Otaki to, uh, to be part of the assembly there and to worship God together. Um, <clears throat> so my Christian heritage is a strong, evangelical, Bible-believing community of God's people. And it still is. My own decision to take Jesus as my saviour was at the age of five as a result of a Christian beach mission called CSSM Christian um, uh, Children's Special Service Mission, now known as Scripture Union. And they would come each uh, Christmas time and for a week or ten days they would have this special services down on the beach, gather the children, local children together and we would build sandcastles and sculptures and sand and all kinds of things and they would teach the truths of scripture. <clears throat> and it was there assisted by one of their leaders that I asked Jesus into my heart at five years of age. When I was uh, about seven years of old, my, uh, seven years of age, my Uncle George Edgecombe, on my mum's side, left New Zealand to go to Ecuador as a missionary. He felt called to go there, and God used that event to speak into my life and left me with the belief that one day God would also call me to become a missionary. It's seven years of age. And so it happened. I was about 15 when I was baptised, recommitting my life to Christ at this time, we lived in New Plymouth, and we attended the Brethren Assembly there. A very active and um, effective youth group operated, which played an important part in my spiritual development. And our very own Rod Edwards, who sits in that chair there every Sunday, uh, was one of the leaders of that group. And so if I'm standing here today speaking to you, he at least is partly to blame. One of the features and strengths of the Open Brethren was their emphasis on evangelism and mission work. They took the great commandment, go into all the world and preach the gospel very seriously. One writer describes them in these words, the Open Brethren contribute disproportionately among evangelical church groupings to personnel working abroad in mission, relief and development. <clears throat> gospel caravans were a feature where followers of Jesus would give extended periods of time to travel around the country visiting homes and witnessing to God's work of salvation and inviting people to respond to the gospel message. My uncle George, the one who went to Ecuador as a missionary, he spent two years traveling around with these gospel caravans. Um, and one such work was conducted by Oops. Sylvia Martin. Sylvia Martin being a relative of Mark Glover and Christina. Uh, and she spent time um, with a friend traveling around the East Coast Bay of Plenty area and had a significant impact uh, on the growth of the church amongst Maori people in that area. Her story is told in this booklet called... God's Hand in Maori Land, published in 1975. 
These people went out trusting God to supply their needs in every way, basing their choices and commitments on passages of scripture, such as what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all your needs according to his riches in uh, the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And this was the environment of my early development. During my younger formative years, I also read biological books, uh, sorry, biographical books about people who had determined to know the mind of God through scripture and apply the principles of living by faith uh, to every aspect of their lives. One of these books was the story of George Mueller. How many have heard of George Mueller? Two, three, four, five, six, yeah, a few. A great book to read. And if you want to be challenged, or if you don't want to be challenged, then don't read it. <laughs> George Mueller was this character. He has a hairstyle like looks like mine when I get up in the morning. <laughs> he was born in Germany in 1805. He grew up into a young man who was frequently involved in petty crime, often to do with what we would call scams, and even a time in jail didn't uh, stop him or reform him in any way. However, in 1825, when he was about 20 years old, George Mueller attended a prayer meeting. And at that, uh, at that time, he heard the gospel message in a clear way and responded to it, giving his life to Christ. With his life dramatically transformed, Mueller felt called to mission work. He eventually ended up in Bristol, England, and there he became involved in creating Christian schools and supporting missionaries. Mueller established 117 schools which offered Christian education to tens of thousands of children. And he continued to support a great number of missionaries throughout his life. He is, however, remembered more particularly for his extraordinary achievements with orphans. In the Britain of that time, the combination of large families, extreme poverty, and high level uh, of adult mortality had resulted in many orphans, most of whom ended up on the street. The state ignored them. And in, in 1836, Mueller and his wife began taking in orphans into their home. Their work grew in an astonishing way, so that by 1870, 1,700 children were housed in five purpose-built homes. By the end of Mueller's life, age 93, his homes had housed 10,000 orphan children. Here's where I'm getting emotional. <clears throat> Mueller's commitment was not simply to house children, but to clothe, feed, and educate them, and ultimately, where possible, to find jobs for them. We know it's expensive today, isn't it, to, to, um, to feed our own kids. However many we've got, two, three, five, six, whatever. Imagine the cost of feeding hundreds at a time. But George Mueller never worried about money and never asked for donations. He believed that God would answer his prayers to provide their needs. And this was a significant point of George Mueller's life. He believed God's promise, I will supply your needs. 
Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And George Mueller lived by these principles. He never asked anybody for any money. This achievement alone um, would justify Mueller's hero status, but what is astonishing that uh, in doing what he did, he never made requests for financial support. He simply prayed that God would supply his needs and leave it all to him. Extraordinarily, God just did just that regularly and for decades. Mueller was a meticulous administrator, <clears throat> and his detailed accounts reveal that in his lifetime he received the equivalent of two, listen to this, 200 million pounds, or dollars, sorry, 200 million dollars received through donations without ever asking anybody for money. Always astonishing, ge astonishingly generous, he refused donations for his own well-being and died in near poverty. These figures disguise an, an astonishing reality. There are many well-attested accounts of how when he and his staff seemed to be on the point of running out of either food or money, last-minute unsolicited donations of gifts arrived. On one occasion, Mueller found himself um, with 300 orphans assembled for breakfast and no food. He sim simply sat them down at the table and gave thanks. He said grace. And at that point, there was a knock on the door. <coughs> it was a local baker who'd woken up at two o'clock in the morning with a feeling that he needed to bake more bread than what was usual and take it to the orphanage. Shortly afterwards, a milkman arrived to say that his wagon, <laughs> his wagon had broken down outside the orphanage and he wanted to offer his milk to the children. <laughs> Over the decades, Mueller's ever-expanding work often ran on a hand-to-mouth basis, but he never ran into debt. God works in amazing ways. George Mueller felt that this was what God wanted for him and that it would demonstrate that a miracle-working God still existed, and he does. George Mueller believed faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. I was challenged and inspired by the life of George Mueller. And George wasn't the only one who lived such a life of faith, trusting God for everything. Anthony Norris Groves, another person who was around the time of Mueller as well, um, famous man amongst the Brethren um, people, uh, he left with his wife, went to Baghdad, and later on to India, many years spent preaching the gospel in, in Baghdad and India as missionaries, practicing the same faith as Mueller, not asking for money, believing God would supply. Hudson Taylor, in the same way, went to China, and many others have followed the same path. 
the open brethren took up this belief that faith was about trusting God to provide and made that practice for any who were called to mission work within New Zealand and overseas. As a child, I heard God's call on my life. That call was confirmed to me in my late teens when he let me know I was to go and serve him in Italy. I later met Lillian when I went to work for her parents on the farm in Northland. There were two eligible daughters on the farm at the time. And after working for a year, I came away with the right one. Lillian and I talked about my call to mission um, uh, and, and prayed for God's direction about our relationship. Believing God had given us to each other and willing to serve him together, we were married. Two daughters later, and with the blessing and commendation of the church where we'd been in fellowship, we sold everything we had, traveled and traveled to Italy. We followed what was by then established brethren practice of trusting God completely to supply our needs. We had no mission organization behind us. We had no financial backing whereby we might know from month to month how much money, if any, we might get. But we spent nearly 20 years in Italy trusting God in this way and never went hungry. Certainly, we were... We wondered at times how we were going to get through. <laughs> there were moments of anxiety, should I say. Dare I say, do, do we get anxious? Oh, yes, we do. But God always supplied in one way or another open doors for us to build relationships and reach people with the gospel. One time we had moved to a village uh, in the south of Italy. Southern Italians tend to be very... Um, bound by tradition and suspicious of outsiders. We decided we'd just live amongst these people, go about our daily activities of going to the shops and markets to buy vegetables and groceries each, each day, walking out in the early evening as a family to be seen and become a familiar sight, to create a vegetable garden and a piece of unused land and bottle tomatoes for pasta sauce. We prayed that in his time, God would open the door for us. The local priest <clears throat> had warned the locals about us coming and told them that they should not open their homes to us. There was one, there was one family who were open to us, however. They were poor, they were farmers, they owned one cow that supplied their milk and we would go down day by day to get by our milk from them ourselves. We got on well with them, became good friends with the husband, Gennaro, and my heart, having a farming background provided a solid connection. One day, Gennaro was distressed. His cow had got an infection in its rear hoof and was quite sick. The local vet said there was nothing he could do and that the cow should be sent to the slaughter. Of course, it would be worth nothing because it had an infection. I had a look at the animal and having had extensive experiences in my farming career with what was known as foot rot, I decided it could be saved. I needed to get hold of penicillin to treat the animal, but I knew that the vet wouldn't supply me anything for that. And so I went to the local chemist. <laughs> and I told the chemist 
that I would like whatever stocks of sample penicillin he might have in his back room and told him why I needed it. And he gave me a large quantity of penicillin. This was in doses obviously suitable for human beings, so I had to multiply those doses uh, to make it um, uh, suitable for, for the cow. So each day I would go to Gennaro's and treat the animal. I had to cut into the hoof with, and uh, release the build-up of pus. I had to flush it out with disinfectant and, and then bind the hoof with bandages and socks to, um, to keep it clean. The other rear hoof also developed an infection and I had to treat that as well. Having its two rear feet infected, the cow was unable to stand. Uh, because the cow was still producing milk, we still had to milk her. And this was done by hand, no machines. So one of us would push her over to, onto one side and milk the two teats that were uh, exposed into a bucket. And then we'd flip her over onto the other side and milk the other two teats. <clears throat> we did this for three weeks until the cow's hooves were healed and she was able to stand again. And of course, all this was public knowledge uh, given the effective nature of grapevine communication and village curiosity. As a result, some villagers started bringing other ailing animals to me. <laughs> and knowing Lillian had a medical know-how, she was a registered nurse, they also asked help from her for their children. And in this way, we were accepted into the village and doors were open for us. We were, had opportunities to explain the word of God. Many other instances occurred that showed just to what extent God cared and provided for us. Our trust was in him. Oh, I forgot to push the button, didn't I? There we go. Yeah. Scripture tells us the just shall live by faith. And this passage is also quoted, that was in the Old Testament, this passage is also quoted, quoted three times in the New Testament. What does it mean to live by faith? This guy says, the root idea of faith is the belief in and faithfulness exercised toward God in true, wholehearted obedience. In practice... Living by faith and trust means it involves this, letting go of control. We like to be in control of stuff, don't we? We like to know what's happening, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. We don't always have that control, and it's in those moments when we find ourselves panicking, getting upset or anxious. We need to know how to let go of control. We need to embrace the positive expectancy and safe dependency on God. We expect good things of God. We expect faithfulness from God. And we are dependent on him. We are safely dependent on him because we know that he will not let us down. We need to be okay with not knowing. We need to be open to risk and uncertainty. Lots of questions, aren't there? But if I don't know or if I don't have the sort, 
you know, what's going to happen? How will I manage what? Mm. We need to be okay, open to risk and uncertainty. And we need to have full confidence in another's future actions, and in this case, God's future actions. We need to know that God will come to the party. He's going to, be, he's going to show up. Might not do it in the time frame that we think he should, but he's going to show up. And we need to have a willingness to live accordingly. That is to actually put into practice what we say we believe. Let me tell you that living by faith is not something that those who we think might think of as spiritually elite people do. Living by faith is the common everyday experience of people who walk with God. As an example, and I, uh, I have Amanda, who on Facebook said this, life can be scary. Sometimes you have to trust God that everything will be okay and take a leap of faith, even when things are uncertain. It's like getting on a plane and trusting the pilot, believing he will take you where you want to go, even if you don't know exactly how it will happen. Or Bruce Knox. Life, um, being a medical patient, trapped in catastrophization's maze, where the professionals judge, unable to truly gaze. They fail to see the root, the cause of my plight, but I yearn for the big picture, a shimmer of insight. People who live trusting God. And what about John and Renee, who stood up here this morning and said, we don't like each other, but we're willing. We're willing. People who live by faith, who trust. See, living by faith is not just something for those who have a special calling from God or a special uh, anointing or a special whatever. It's people like you and me. We live by faith. Scripture says the just shall live by faith. The just are those people who have been made right by God, who are fit to live in God's presence. That's us. Isn't that cool? Also, John Kirkby of Christians Against Poverty, his book, nevertheless, some of you know his story. And he says this, the ins that somebody says this about him, the inspiring story of one ordinary man who simply said yes to God, to his grand invitation to follow him. And John said, we, be we began our life together by getting rid of all our security and starting a Christian money with a ministry with no money. We were ready to go, <laughs> armed with 10 pounds. <laughs> that, and, and knowledge that, and faith that God was with us. With a vision and a prayer, we started. These are people who are willing to take God at his word, to trust. Not necessarily knowing their final outcome. Paul writes to the Corinthians in Rome, and I think... 
what I think is a very relevant description of the life of faith. And he says, All around us we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it is within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. Those sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That's why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside us, helping us along. We don't know how or what to pray. It doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail of our lives of love for God is worked into something good. We can be sure. The Apostle John records Jesus as saying to his disciples, The Father is with me. I've told you all this so that trusting me, you will be unshakable and assured, deeply at peace. In this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties, but take heart. I have conquered the world. We live with the reality of life as it is. There is cruelty, injustice, bullying, discrimination, immorality, wars, disasters, natural or otherwise. We experience physical, emotional and mental disabilities. Trauma is part of many people's lives. Relationships are challenging and dysfunctional and Christians are equally caught up in these realities as are non-Christians. The kingdom of God is here and now, yet evil is rampant. How can this be? We live in this paradox, this life that doesn't make sense, that shouldn't be like it is, and we don't know how to resolve it. Paul likens it to a pregnancy. It has its attendant pains and discomfort. It seems to be interminable in the waiting Along the way, there are questions like, is everything okay? Is what I'm experiencing normal? Is this particular discomfort a sign of pro some problem? I haven't felt my baby for some time. Is it okay? Do I need to get to the hospital? Lots of questions. Usually, this is all normal. And while we would like to get to the delivered stage and experience the relief and joy the waiting is necessary. Necessary to allow a baby to develop fully, so with our life in Christ. Paul explains that waiting is important, though painful, and we must wait for God's timing. When things begin to, when things begin to not make sense or overwhelm, then the Spirit of God is right there to help us make it to the end. Our job is to trust that God knows what he's doing and that he is carrying his work in us 
through to completion. I'm not called to escape the pains of life. I'm called to face it. I can't always find a solution to the difficulties I experience. I can't always make sense of the senseless. Sometimes I just need to accept that I have no answer and I'm not in control. The life of faith is not about being in control. It's about letting God be in control. It's about believing that he knows what he's doing and will provide the answer when the time is right. Something Josh White said last Sunday stands out for me. He said, when you think of God, what thoughts do you have? It is our thoughts that determine how I live my life. If I say, I trust you, Lord, like we sang, and then worry myself sick over what happens or how things may turn out, what does this say about how I think about God? Here is the text from Proverbs in the message version. Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Listen to God's voice in everything you do, everywhere you go. He's the one who will keep you on track. And the Apostle Paul said, My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. I sometimes think, I can't do this. I'm not up to it. I find it difficult to really trust God. And then the Spirit of God says to me, you're right, you're not up to it, for all have fallen short of God's glory. And then I'm reminded that I am chosen by God and he has justified me and made me fit to be his follower. I am reassured that God does it, not me. And so in the end, I can say, I believe, Lord help my unbelief. <laughs>